Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is part of our continuing series with the Commuter Rail Coalition, and I'm very pleased to, uh, to welcome uh, once again uh, uh, the Executive Director uh, of the Commuter Rail Coalition, Kellyanne Gallagher. A repeat guest, uh, John Klein, of uh, uh, Principal of Klein Strategic Consulting and Director of Government Affairs for the Commuter Rail Coalition. And uh, our two special guests, Bennett Resnick, who is uh, uh, of Council and uh, Director of uh, Government Relations at Cardinal Infrastructure, and uh, Julie Minerva, who is a partner at Carpi and Clay. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, John. I think we're we're familiar with uh, with what you do, but um, uh, Bennett, let's if you could just give us a, a brief description of uh, uh, of what you do at uh, uh, Cardinal Infrastructure. Sure, Bill, and thanks for having me. Um, so uh, I serve as a council and and director of government relations with Cardinal Infrastructure. Uh, my role there representing uh, public transit agencies, manufacturers, and other entities in the transportation and infrastructure space, uh, dealing with both regulatory compliance matters and uh, advocacy issues on the Hill and with the uh, with the executive branch. Okay, thank you. Uh, Julie, Carpy, and Clay, uh, you're a partner there. What uh, What's your role? Thanks, Bill, and appreciate you having me on today. So I am an actual lobbyist. I know sometimes it's not good to be saying the L word, but I am a registered lobbyist and pleased to be doing so because we do really great work on behalf of local government infrastructure interests across the country. So today I'm here representing the South Shore uh, that bridges South Bend into Chicago, but I work on infrastructure projects across the country. And as my role at Carpe and Clay, I've worked on infrastructure projects in 25 states and American Samoa. So it's all infrastructure all the time. I like that, all infrastructure all the time. And uh, just uh, also, uh, you know, South Shore, officially known as the Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District, or NICD. But I kind of like South Shore better, so. It rolls Uh, off the tongue. (laughs) Yep. So, uh, John, why don't you uh, uh, give us a rundown of uh, kind of what's – set the agenda here, what's what's going on. This is going to be an interesting year, to say the least, 2022. Yeah, that's correct, Bill, and, and thanks again for having us today. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's uh, interesting on many levels. We, we have a new infrastructure bill that's been enacted. Uh, unfortunately, we have an appropriations bill that's languishing, um, and, and a lot of the funding or increases in funding is, is tangled up in, in the final resolution of that bill. Uh, and of course, it's an election year, which, uh, which brings a whole nother level of, uh, of uniqueness and interest in what's going on in Washington. Um, so, uh, so yeah, as, you know, as we head into, uh, this, this new year, uh, our, our agenda is uh, by no means short. Uh, we have a lot of really important issues that we're still working on. Um, you know, some, some things were accomplished in the infrastructure bill. 
Uh, some of the other uh, concerns that we have were were not addressed. Um, it was a it, it was a bill that really didn't lend itself to a lot of uh, uh, of interaction and back and forth. As you recall, it, uh, it somewhat uh, disappeared behind closed doors uh, and um, and was ultimately resolved um, uh, on a bipartisan basis. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know we're. We're confident that some of the issues we're pursuing um, are uh, certainly get get the attention of uh, of members of Congress, and um, uh, so uh, without further ado, I'll just kind of run through a couple of those things. Uh, again, this year, returning as our top priority uh, is the issue dealing with excess liability insurance coverage, and uh, uh, as you as you recall, we we did an entire. Uh, segment just on that issue alone. Uh, and we certainly could talk uh, again today that long and then some. It, uh, but, but trying to boil it down into, uh, into a digestible bite size, uh, you know, commuter rail agencies uh, have to secure um, uh, what they call excess liability coverage. There's a, there's a basic uh, base level of coverage that runs up to about $50 million dollars. And then um, uh, additional coverage that goes from 50 million up to roughly 323 million dollars in uh, in coverage, which is uh, the federal liability cap. Uh, you, you could debate whether uh, commuter rail agencies uh, should, under the law, have to insure up to that level. A number of states have uh, sovereign immunity uh, uh, provisions that uh, that limit their exposure to liability at significantly lower levels. Uh, you know, a lot of them, the five million dollar range, some as low as two million dollars. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, because we often cross on to other uh, owned uh, track, shared track with uh, with Class Ones and Amtrak and the like. They they have started to require as a condition of access to to those to the trackage that we carry up to the federal liability cap, and then on top of that, um, our uh, positive train control contractors also require uh, a uh, as a condition of the receipt of the license that we carry up to that limit. So our hand is enforced. Um, and um, and that necessarily in itself wasn't so much a bad thing. Sure, it's an additional cost, uh, but we ran into problems uh, that started showing up really in 2018. Going into 2019, we noticed increased premiums, um, and then ultimately in 2020, we saw reduced capacity amongst these insurance carriers. And what's really driving that? is not so much that the risk and loss uh, uh, portfolio for passenger rail is, is bad or uh, looks like it might become bad in the future. The reality is, is that these insurers are suffering major losses in other areas due to wildfires and hurricanes. And so um, with those losses, they've, uh, they've just decided they're going to reduce their exposure. And some very long time um, insurers have exited the market completely. Um, many others have just reduced their capacity. And so, you know, your classic laws of economics with, uh, with the supply going down, the prices going up. Uh, but even more troubling is, is that we have really had a number of circumstances where our individual 
agency members have uh, come very close to not being able to secure uh, the full coverage up to the federal liability cap. And if that were to occur, um, they would face a shutdown scenario because either the um, railroads who they share access with would invoke uh, uh, their contractual obligations or the PTC contractors uh, who watch this very closely and would be very aware immediately uh, if we did not secure coverage up to that cap. So, so it's a real it's a real problem. It's it's very similar in many respects to uh, what happened post 9/11 when terrorism risk insurance was uh, was you know no longer available, particularly for the airlines. And frankly, they just were not going to fly without it. And the federal government stepped in. And um, effectively became a reinsurer, kept you know kept the marketplace afloat, uh, effectively you know backing up any potential losses that someone would would incur uh, for terrorism risk insurance. So so we have uh, you know put together the industry collectively. Uh, in this case, uh, APTA uh, took the lead on developing legislation. We're fully supportive of that legislation. Um, to create a new federal program that would ensure the availability of insurance coverage if, if effectively had the federal government step into the shoes of where the private market used to stand um, and provide coverage, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. We, we hope uh, and, and plan that this would not be a permanent uh, solution. Our hope is, is that eventually the private insurance market would stabilize and we would be able to return to procuring our coverages through uh, private insurers. But uh, even by the insurance industry's own acknowledgement, they are in a very hard market right now and the signs of it softening up and giving us that comfort level that we need to know that the capacity is going to be there to provide the coverage is really not going to return probably for several years, maybe as long as five years, possibly even longer. So um, in that interim, we want to uh, try to get the federal government to step in. So, Bennett, on this uh, this issue of uh, excess liability, uh, uh, what, what, what are you saying in terms of your, your client, the uh, Virginia Railway Express? So Virginia Railway Express, we you know they have found it increasingly difficult, uh, as John was saying, to secure the required insurance um, because of the circumstances that are beyond its control. Uh, VRE is contractually obligated by its host railroads, as as many are, uh, to obtain the entire. Uh, currently now, I think it's 322, 323 million in excess liability insurance, and you know due to a number of, of factors in the insurance uh, marketplace. Uh, as John described, this type of protection is becoming increasingly expensive and difficult to secure, even though VRE and, and the commuter rail industry, uh, I think, remains one of the safest modes of travel um, with PTC and other technologies. Um, so factors outside of the commuter rail industry have really impacted uh, VRE's ability to obtain the, uh, the proper level of liability insurance on an annual basis. So, John, what are the other uh, key issues that uh, the Commuter Rail Coalition is 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 working on at this point? 
Sure. Yeah, I, I would point to, to two additional ones on our on our list. Uh, one has to deal with commuter rail access and resolution of disputes that we have with uh, with railroads. Uh, uh, this is this is not a new issue uh, where there is existing commuter rail service. We we have ongoing issues with uh, with host railroads, including Amtrak. Um, and then for new services that are being contemplated, this is a big hurdle. And the fact of the matter is we just don't have a resolution, a dispute resolution process that is set up to address these things. So so we're, we're pushing for uh, uh, legislation in particular to to uh, provide the industry with just that sort of a, of a process. Uh, the other last issue I would mention too is just funding that is geared toward commuter rail. Uh, as, as you go around the country and talk to commuter rail agencies, all of them will tell you that they have significant capital needs, both infrastructure as well as rolling stock. And uh, we continue to look for opportunities for specific commuter rail funding. We do get our funding uh, through the through the transit program, the FTA programs. Um, but uh, but our needs are very different and very unique compared to transit. And so we are we are striving to target some funding uh, that would provide some reliable streams of funding for those capital needs. And that's always been uh, an issue or a problem, just uh, being able to plan long term uh, and for, for the agencies being able to plan long term because they're that lack of certainty of uh, uh, funding, you know, instead of running back to you know, the state or whoever is providing the funding every year, maybe if there was to be some sort of a uh, uh, a more a long-term certainty. Uh, several of the suppliers that um, car builders I've spoken with, Alstom, um, Siemens among them, uh, they're, they're looking at the same thing. You know, this would really, really help us in terms of configuring our own capacity to manufacture new vehicles, for example, if there were more a more certain funding stream. So everybody benefits from something like this. You're absolutely right. I mean, just down the line, it's it's passenger cars, it's locomotive power, uh, it's, uh, you know, infrastructure expansion and improvements. Um, there, there's a lot of needs out there and, uh, and not a lot of specific uh, programs that you can point to where you can really target that funding from. So, Julie, what's happening with uh, President Biden's uh, budget uh, from your, uh, your perspective at uh, Carpe and Clay? Thanks for the question, Bill. So at this point in time, we are anticipating that President Biden will release his fiscal year 2023 budget around the middle of March. And really what's driving that timeline is that the State of the Union is scheduled for March 1st. And so typically we have these things happen in tandem with the State of the Union address and then the budget. Um, but the other factor that's driving the release of the budget in mid-March, which as you probably know, is a delay from an early February release. And that is the fact that Congress is still working to complete the fiscal year 2022 appropriations bills. And the continuing resolution that is keeping the entire government funded will run out on February 18th. So the goal is that the appropriators can get to the February 18th deadline and complete that process so that when President Biden appears before Congress for his first State of the Union address on March 1st, he will be able to have the FY22 appropriations behind him and move forward with FY23. 
couple of things that I'm really curious about as it relates to uh, this first full budget from the president is how the president's priorities of um, environmental justice, uh, combating climate change, and equity will be incorporated into the budget document. And with the release of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the multiple webinars and stakeholder engagement series that the Department of Transportation held uh, over the course of December, we heard time and time again that many of these projects from a competitive nature would be looking at climate and equity to be woven into these applications. So this, this budget document, even if sometimes they're considered dead on arrival up on Capitol Hill for various reasons, I think this is going to be an interesting read um, to see exactly how climate and equity will relate. Um, I think with those two measures, commuter rail will compete very, very well, but of course, we'll be very interested in what those details are. Well, I would think that any project that is going to, quote unquote, get people out of their cars and onto public transit would have uh, environmental benefits and equity built into it. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, at least for, for people like us in our industry, it's a no brainer. Uh, is it a no brainer for members of Congress? You know, do they get it? That's the big question here. That's, that's always the question, right? Um, but I do think that, uh, Climate equity are in the DNA of commuter rail, and I think that this industry has a lot to show for that. Um, and I just think it's going to be a matter of making that um, a leading part of the message. You know, the message about commuter rail changes over time. Sometimes it's about uh, saving money. Sometimes it's about saving time, you know, all these sorts of factors. And so I think for the message to resonate with this administration, we're going to have to start leading with climate and equity. John, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I totally agree with Julie. I think she she hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the every president's budget document is is a political document, and and as, as she pointed out, a lot of particularly uh, people from the other party like to indicate that it's a it's a as a budget document, it's dead on arrival. Uh, that that may certainly be the case, but nonetheless, what it does is it does shed light on exactly where the president's priorities lie. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, this is really the first time the president really gets to to lay those issues out, certainly has been trying to do that over the course of the last year. Um, and so that'll kick off the appropriations process uh, for the FY23 process. Uh, and as Julie pointed out, hopefully, hopefully we'll have uh, resolved by then the uh, the FY22 process, because what is being held hostage right now is uh, is a lot of increased funding for for infrastructure, and until the uh, until the appropriations bill gets done for this year, um, that uh, is not yet being realized. So, uh, uh, so we're we're you know really looking forward to to the president's uh, budget document. I think it's gonna it's gonna shed light on uh, what direction they plan to go. Bennett, your perspective on all this. To emphasize what Julie and John said, you know, this does give a very strong indication of where the president stands and where the administration and the Biden-Harris administration stand on a number of issues. And we can see them uh, come out in the form of executive actions or uh, uh, agency notices of, of opportunities for grants. 
And so definitely use this uh, as, a, as a way to get a sense of where the administration and, and its agencies are going in, in FY 2022. So Bennett, can you give us a, a rundown of uh, what's out there, what's available in terms of uh, grant uh funding there's uh there's a whole host of programs it, it can get kind of confusing why don't you try to uh unconfuse us sure bill there's there's three programs i want to highlight in particular from the infrastructure investment and jobs act uh, you know the administration is looking to put a lot of notices out on the street in, in the first quarter that allows them to have applications due um uh, rather quickly uh, before they review in the summer and award in uh, September, October timeline before the midterm. So I do expect for a number of grants to be coming out uh, in the next couple of months. Um, three in particular, and one is a brand new program, the Railroad Crossing Elimination Grant Program. Um, and that is a, a new standalone program to help fund um, uh, uh, projects for uh, highway rail grade or, or um pathway rail grade crossing safety and improve, improve mobility uh, for, for people and, and the goods on these on these tracks. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, Senator Cantwell uh, led this effort. It's an incredible program. Uh, there's $600 million a year in advance appropriations over the five-year bill. Um, uh, it allows for a, 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 a lot of uh, uh, safety improvements that made across the country for these projects that um, or otherwise uh, in a very competitive market for a number of other grant programs that have limited funding. Um, the, the second is the Rail Vehicle Replacement Grant Program, and that is a new program under the State of Good Repair Grant Program to assist uh, 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 governments in financing capital projects to replace their rail rolling stock. And so each year, there's a total of $300 million available. Uh, that's gonna be going to not more than three eligible projects totaling um, $1.5 billion over the life of the, of the infrastructure bill. Uh, the third one is uh, the Consolidated Rail Infrastructure and Safety Improvements Program, or as we all refer to it as CRISI, and uh, a number of new um, project eligibility uh, activities have been added from the infrastructure bill, um, uh, three in particular that I think uh, are, are quite interesting. Uh, one focusing on the deployment of railroad safety technology, uh, the second, uh, again, looking at um, procuring and remanufacturing, rehabbing, overhauling locomotives um, uh, so that they can uh, they can provide significant reductions of emissions. And then, uh, interestingly, there's there's a provision in the in the statute that has um, uh, the eligibility for research, development, and testing to advance and facilitate quote innovative rail projects. And so you can read that as as hyperloop, or you can read that as something. Uh, uh, a little more um, uh, realistic from the uh, from the passenger and, and inner city passenger and freight rail standpoint. So the, a lot of new grant programs, a lot of money available, and so it'll be very interesting to see uh, the timing of, of these coming out and the projects that apply. The other one that I would like to flag, because I think Bennett has a really great targeted list for this industry, but there's also a new opportunity that has been created called the Mega Projects account. And that notice of funding opportunity is supposed to come out in mid-February. So I think we're all really anxious to see what the details of that program are. And when I think about the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, it seems to me to be very similar to what we saw about 10 years ago go with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA. And of course, 
ARA was only one-year funding, whereas the bipartisan infrastructure law is five-year funding. But ARA created the program that we now know as RAISE. And it was the first time that we had these multimodal projects that didn't fit squarely into any modal administration at DOT have an opportunity to apply for federal funding. And it was really transformative for the surface transportation landscape. And I think that this mega projects program could be a supersized version of what we saw started under ARA. So I'm watching this one with great interest as I'm sure um, the rail industry is. So uh, set a calendar notice for mid-February because that's when that NOFO is expected to be released. All these acronyms are uh, just uh, increasing <laughs> in frequency. It's uh, hard to keep track of them. But well, a question I have, general question for anyone who cares to weigh in here. You know, uh, uh, Julie, as you said, some of these uh, projects don't fit cleanly into one modal or administration, whether it's rail or marine or aviation or whatever it might be, transit. How is that sorted out uh, in terms of, uh, you know, who who takes the lead in um, administering these funds? Let's say if you have a, uh, um, a large, a mega project, an intermodal transportation center that's going to bring in, you know, commuter rail, intercity, uh, possibly even a you know water connection. So who, who knows? You know the sky's the limit. How do you sort that out, or how does the government sort that out? It's a great question because, of course, these are very complex projects. So from a Department of Transportation perspective, they've done a couple of things over the years. The first is that for these um, multimodal opportunities like RAISE, the programs are being run out of the office of the secretary not out of the Federal Railroad Administration or the FTA, that sort of thing. So they're trying to have that overarching um, experience and expertise within DOT by running it through the secretary's office. The second thing that they've done um, recently is develop the Build America Bureau, which is really designed to be this one-stop shop within the Department of Transportation for these large multimodal projects to come to. And this is sort of your access point to um, have one office arrange for a meeting with you and your local stakeholders, and they will bring the other modal administrators uh, to the table. So, for instance, if you have got um, a rail project that intersects with an airport, they will have FRA, FTA, and FAA in the room with you. And it's really nice because instead of setting up four or five different meetings, you're having one collective conversation from the get-go to try to sort through uh, those issues at the start. So I would say those are two things that we're seeing so far. John, from your perspective, uh, you, you've been dealing uh, with government for years now in, in your career. Uh, what we're seeing here with having the, the DOT as an uh, overarching agency and bringing every all the players to the table, all the stakeholders, um, I would think, on at least on the surface, it appears to be a very positive development. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that statement? I tend to be an optimist, which is maybe unusual, but uh, please. Uh, You're right. I, I think there's reason for optimism. Um, 
uh, you know, the points that Julie raised are, are all the key issues. Um, we're, we're seeing a great deal of funding now uh, on a discretionary basis that is going to be controlled by the office of the secretary. And if you think about it, the way the department was set up back in the 60s, uh, it's really kind of a corporate holding structure uh, uh, that they used, individual modes that managed their own business and, you know, God help you if you had multimodal you know, coordination that was necessary. We used to see this a lot, particularly in transit, where transit wanted to run rail connections into airports. And airports, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration had uh, their own set of rules that effectively prohibited that. And uh, so, so it was really painful. Um, you know, I think back to the days of when Chicago went into O'Hare Airport with the Chicago Transit Authority. It was a it was a very overly complex process that uh, that fortunately we don't face today. So there's been I think um, you know as we move toward intermodalism, it, it started out as a theory, but in reality you've started to see more and more of that going on in the department. And now with these uh, with more of these grant funds actually coming out of the office of the secretary. They're forcing that issue even more so uh, that you look at things from an intermodal standpoint, and um, and they're you know they're staffing with people from the modes, but they're forcing them to all work together, and so I think it's uh, I think it's certainly a good development. You spoke the key word there, intermodalism, which is uh, in my nearly thirty years at uh, Railway Age, that's a word that's been tossed around a lot. Sort of like a a, a hoped for concept, but now I, it seems to me maybe that's moved beyond uh, a, something that's on a wish list or a concept, and it's actually here. Intermodalism are are people in the government thinking of integrated transportation? Is this a reason yeah, to I, smile? I, right, right, <laughs> yeah. I think they are, and if you know, the interesting thing is, is that what forced their hand was really that the private sector was driving toward intermodalism, right? The, the freight railroads, trucking, shipping, um, and then uh, fortunately it, it started to creep over into the passenger side. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes government isn't necessarily the leading uh, a new policy direction. Uh, they certainly talked about it, but what forced their hand was is that in practice we were seeing a lot more intermodal activities going on, and um, and I think I think you're right. There's there's certainly reason to be encouraged that we're we're now seeing what was a hoped for policy actually uh, the rubbers meeting the road. Okay, so I'm going to borrow from uh, uh, the late legendary Johnny Carson and play uh, Karnak here, although I'm not going to put a funny hat on, but. Uh, as we gaze into the crystal ball, what are we seeing? Uh, Julie, let's, uh, let's start with you. Is it clear? Is it cloudy? Well, you know, it's Washington, D.C., so it's always a bit swampy. But um, I think that it's a really good thing for the transportation industry that the bipartisan infrastructure law is done. It's nice to have that in the rearview mirror and to be looking forward on the implementation of that. But in terms of what Congress is going to accomplish in a midterm election year, I think that uh, we will see some infrastructure activity, but it'll be on the water side. It'll be the Water Resources Development Act of 2022. I think that we're also going to see a scaled back um, 
Build Back Better Act, which could have some additional provisions in there for the rail community. So I, I'm, I'm like you, I'm an optimist. I'm very hopeful that we get these things done. But I think that the big news stories as they relate to uh, transportation happened in the last quarter of 2021. Bennett, your your thoughts on the uh, on the crystal ball? Murky, cloudy, clear, bright, <laughs> shining. Looks like it's about to explode. What 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 are you looking at? I I, I think it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, with with the with the passage of the the bipartisan infrastructure law, a lot of our attention and time uh, and resources turns to implementation, and so we look to federal agencies uh, on how they're implementing the law, how they're um, uh, putting out notices of funding opportunities, updating guidance, rules, regulations uh, to reflect the changes in the statute. And so uh, while there there is some legislative activity um, to, to track this year, uh, a lot of the, the focus is on the administration. Um, that said, as Julie mentioned, you know there, there are things to focus on um, on Capitol Hill. Um, this year we'll have um, uh, congressionally directed spending opportunities uh, again in the appropriations process. It's possible that that goes away next year if the Republicans take the House. Um, and so we, we want to be uh, be tracking uh, those kind of opportunities where projects can get funding, uh, new funding or additional funding through the earmark process. Um, in, in addition, with COVID uh, still raging in a, in a number of uh, uh, areas in the U.S., um, there's still um, possibility for a, a small package uh, a funding for um, COVID relief for state, local, tribal, territorial um, uh, governments to help in any sort of infrastructure and disaster relief recovery. John, let's turn it over to you for your view on this uh, amazing crystal ball. <laughs> Great. Well, all I can say is, uh, fortunately, I don't get paid based on my uh, my predictions. Um, <laughs> Because I would I would be in big trouble, uh, you know. Bennett raises some really good points there. That it's uh, certainly a, a quite an accomplishment to have gotten the infrastructure built done. Uh, I, you know, I've I've always thought that infrastructure was one area where where uh, you really could find true bipartisanship. And uh, it was it, it was squeaking and grinding and looked a little difficult there for a while, but you know it, it finally came through and, and shows again that this is an area where I think political differences can be put aside. Um, that said, um, there are some really significant regulations and and just general guidance that is going to have to come out of the Department of Transportation um, now that this bill has been enacted. And that is no small undertaking. Uh, as you know, you know, if you if you undertake a formal rulemaking, uh, it is at least a two year long process, if not longer. Um, and uh, and even just general guidance uh, can can often take you know six plus months to get that out the door. And of course, then answer all the questions that that result from the guidance. So um, you know, we've seen in past authorizations where a number of the modes. Uh, you know, had five, six-year authorization periods, and they never got regulations out the door that they were supposed to get uh, under those old laws. So it is uh, it is no small feat. It requires that the department really double down on these efforts, in addition to pushing the money out the door and, and showing some transparency on how they're going to spend the money, uh, which is going to be critical. Congress is going to be looking very closely at that. Uh, but the burden 
basically putting uh, important information that guides grantees is, uh, is I think, going to be a key issue. And uh, I think those are the, the things that we're going to see get done this year. Like I said, uh, I think being an election year, it's going to be a light legislative year. Um, but uh, hopefully we at least address things on the regulatory side. Well, Kellyanne Gallagher, John Klein, Bennett Resnick, and Julie Minerva, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, there's a lot going on, and uh, uh, we're going to come back to this uh, as, as soon as we can, and we will keep you informed. You have that promise from, uh, from Railway Age, and you have that promise from the Commuter Rail Coalition. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, and uh, have a safe day, everybody. Thanks again, Bill, for having us. We always appreciate the opportunity to share what's going on with the Community Rail Coalition and doing so in partnership with you. And um, I appreciate the time. Mm -hmm.